This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. In today's Out of the Blue podcast, we will discuss the article, Mild Elevation of Pulmonary Arterial Pressure as a Predictor of Mortality, as well as the accompanying editorial, Under Pressure to Clarify Pulmonary Hypertension Clinical Risk, published in the February 15, 2018 Blue Journal. I am joined today by Dr. Gabor Kovach and Dr. Brad Marin. Dr. Kovach is a corresponding author of the primary article, and Dr. Marin is the first author of the editorial. Thank you both for joining me. And let's start the podcast with a question for Dr. Marin. Uh, I wanted to provide some background for our listeners. We know the definition of pulmonary hypertension to be a mean pulmonary artery pressure, or PAP as we may refer to it throughout the podcast, as greater than 25 millimeters of mercury. Where did that number come from? Well, it's a very good question, um, and one that may uh, one for which the answer may surprise uh, many many people listening. Uh, as you mentioned, pulmonary hypertension is defined by a single continuous variable, which is pulmonary artery pressure measured by right heart catheterization uh, supine uh, while at rest. Now, that that definition really has survived uh, over four decades, even though it began as really not much more than an educated guess. When you speak to folks that were present uh, during the original NIH uh, registry uh, discussions to track and uh, determine outcome in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, they will tell you that it is uh, really a discussion that occurred from uh, individuals that had some first-hand experience measuring pulmonary artery pressure, but there were really no organized data when uh, the World Health Organization determined that 25 or greater would be the cutoff point in 1973. And that definition uh, has survived uh, since then uh, through a number of discussions and uh, controversies regarding the data that really support uh, that number of 25. I think that pulmonary hypertension is really no different than a lot of other diseases that were uh, described and defined in a prior era, Uh, although, as I'm sure we'll discuss now, in in large part through uh, Dr. Kovach's work, uh, as well as work from other groups, uh, including ours, I think we have an opportunity now to rethink the way that definition should be characterized uh, to one that's based on clinical outcome and the upper limit of normal using information that we have access to uh, in a standardized and organized way, which was, as I mentioned, not the case uh, back when uh, the original description was published. So let me follow up with you, Dr. Marin, and then I'll actually also get Dr. Kovach to chime in. So, you know, that really tees us up for the next question that I know you published, and, and certainly the current paper talks about this. So what is the existing evidence base that maybe 25 millimeters of mercury in a supine position may not be the appropriate cutoff mean PAP value for pulmonary hypertension? Well, I, I think that since the original description, there have been a, a number of reports to affirm 
the importance of 25 or greater as uh, being associated with important clinical events, including mortality and hospitalization in uh, patients across the spectrum of medical diseases. So, you know, it's, it's true that there are data on the relevance of a mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than 25 being a high-risk finding in folks with uh, primary lung disease, in patients with pulmonary hypertension from uh, left ventricular dysfunction, uh, and so forth across pretty much infectious connective tissue disease uh, and other risk factors for pulmonary vascular injury. The question remained, though, whether or not that risk uh, could be present in and around the cutoff of 25. And it was really Dr. Kovach who published um, the most compelling original report uh, studying connective tissue disease patients and showing that uh, that risk for exercise intolerance may be present at levels below that threshold of 25. Subsequent work uh, leveraging access to national databases of right heart catheterization studies, including uh, work from our group in the VA system, uh, and then in other large databases, uh, including from Vanderbilt University, which is a coordinary referrals uh, center, um, uh, through work done by uh, Evan Britton and his colleagues, began to uh, show the spectrum of clinical risk related to pulmonary artery pressure. And we really needed big databases to uh, do the analyses which allowed treating pulmonary artery pressure as a continuous variable and assessing where the risk seemed to emerge for hard clinical endpoints. And it was really those two large databases that allowed some organized um, analyses to unfold. And when we looked at uh, in our case, in the VA cohort, which uh, included over 21,000 individual patients referred for right heart catheterization uh, for any reason, we saw a continuous relationship uh, between pulmonary artery pressure and all-cause mortality that uh, emerged around uh, 19 to 20 millimeters of mercury and continued all the way through uh, to about 60. In, in that study and in uh, Subsequent studies looking at more gender balanced uh, data, uh, again from Vanderbilt, uh, they would see very similar findings um, and uh, also made a similar observation that the number of patients who fell into that category of below 25 but at increased risk for adverse outcome was a sizable population and that the risk was not small. And so from these larger uh, right heart catheterization databases, we uh, started to organize some uh, thoughts on how this was a sizable population of patients who was vulnerable because they had pulmonary artery pressure levels that were classified currently uh, as normal uh, based on the definition of pulmonary hypertension. And I'll, of course, let Dr. Kovach talk in greater detail about his prior work and, and the work that's the topic of the, the call. But we would learn, uh, and, I, and I would love to hear what he uh, thinks of this, but we would subsequently learn that our lower limit of uh, normal relative to clinical endpoints, that's to say a pulmonary artery pressure of around 19 or 20, matched very nicely with the data he has on, reported on the upper limit of normal. 
And so we started to see a convergence between where uh, normal believe was believed to end uh, with respect to pulmonary artery pressure and clinical events began to emerge. And that level appeared somewhere around 19 or 20. And, and Dr. Kovach, uh, before we get into your paper, maybe that's a nice way to segue into it. If you want to talk about, you know, in, in your paper, you talk about um, patients. Initially, you had a cohort who uh, you looked at retrospectively who underwent right heart cath in your single center over um, a decade and, and then prospectively. So before explaining the study design and the indications for the right heart cath in the current published paper, if you want to talk about some of that. Uh, background data you find about that group that Dr. Marin just referred to, the ones who have sort of borderline PA pressures. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity, and I couldn't agree uh, more uh, to Dr. Marin uh, what what he said. What I may like to add is, and uh, uh, also to understand better the current work, I would like to refer to one of our previous works, which has been published um, in 2009 in the European Respiratory Journal. It was a a large meta-analysis of all uh, previously published right height catheterizations at rest and during exercise. Now, exercise is not the actual topic, but then we also had the opportunity to look at the resting hemodynamics of around 1,200 healthy subjects of different age. We don't have this opportunity anymore because uh, from ethical reasons, it's uh, not easily justifiable to um, to uh, put um, uh, healthy subjects uh, to right heart catheterization. But we found what we found there is that the mean pulmonary pressure uh, in this large group of patients was mainly in, it was independent of of uh, sex. It was independent or only very little dependent of of age at rest. It was independent of geographical origin, and it was 14 millimeters of mercury with a standard deviation of 3.3 millimeters of mercury. And that's where it actually then came from. This was discussed in Dana Point at the the fourth um, world uh, uh, symposium on pulmonary hypertension. And that's when uh, this threshold uh, 20 millimeters of mercury for the upper limit of normal mean pulmonary pressure has been spoken out and and accepted mainly based on on uh, this analysis, and as Dr. Maron said, it's uh, since the 70s that we actually know that the upper limit of the mean pulmonary pressure in um, supine resting humans uh, is around 20 millimeters of mercury, but still um, the colleagues wanted to keep um, a safety range for some reason, and they said that pulmonary hypertension we call from 25 millimeters of mercury. And although it had never been really accepted officially and uh, it was not liked by uh, some of the colleagues, but this range between 20 and 25 millimeters of mercury has usually been called borderline pulmonary pressure values. And uh, I think we are uh, discussing uh, very often uh, about uh, this borderline elevation of pulmonary pressure. Now, one more very important uh, addition from my side 
is that all the trials, all the clinical trials testing drugs working in pulmonary arterial hypertension uh, included patients with a mean pulmonary pressure above or equal 25 millimeters of mercury. So I think it's very, very important to distinguish the, no the upper limit of normal of the mean pulmonary pressure and the experience that we have for the treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And I think it's, it's really important because we, we have evidence that uh, the pulmonary pressure above 20 is not normal, but we do not have evidence for this range uh, regarding therapy, or we only have very, very little evidence, I would say. So um, I hope this uh, could help a little bit to set the stage uh, uh, for, uh, for the paper, because I think it's, it's very important to understand uh, what is normal, what is borderline, what is clearly elevated, and how these artificial thresholds uh, really came about. Well, I think that's very informative, um, and so I think you really do set the stage. So if we could get into uh, the paper, if you could tell us yes. about the study design, um, the initially retrospective review of the right heart cath experience, and then prospectively over the course of a decade. So if you could tell us, if you could give some more detail about that study design, and who were the patients who were getting the right heart cath in terms of what their indications for the procedure were. Yes. So, uh, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, we are um, um, pulmonary hypertension clinic or a pulmonary hy hypertension um, outpatient clinic here in Austria. We are one of the, the major centers for pulmonary hypertension in this country, and that's why we re receive a lot of referrals uh, of patients with suspected pulmonary hypertension. And of course, as in any other pulmonary hypertension clinic, we, um, um, based on the current guidelines, which may change, of course, over the years, we always uh, decide if this suspected pulmonary hypertension is uh, really uh, that important that we have to go further uh, with uh, invasive diagnostics, because as uh, Dr. Maron mentioned, the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension can be done only by right heart catheterization, so echocardiography and other non-invasive methods are not sufficient. So uh, in this cohort, all uh, patients were included uh, who underwent right heart catheterization in our clinic. And, um, and in the first time, we did it uh, in a retrospective manner. And then when we recognized that this is an important question, then uh, we also had a prospective uh, cohort who also underwent uh, this investigation due to the same reasons. And in terms of the indications for the right heart cath um, for, for patients, yes. just whatever the so clinical the uh, suspicion of pulmonary hypertension? Yes. Most patients had... Uh, echocardiographic um, uh, suspect or echocardiographic signs of pulmonary hypertension or right heart uh, dysfunction, suggesting uh, that uh, right heart catheterization has to be done in order to confirm or to exclude uh, pulmonary hypertension in accordance to current uh, PH guidelines. There was also a, a group of patients who had a risk factor uh, for pulmonary hypertension, such as scleroderma, 
that was a, a subgroup whom uh, we also included. And what, what I have to mention at this uh, point, that of course we were looking for patients who uh, have a pulmonary arterial hypertension or a CTEPH, and patients with uh, currently not treatable conditions uh, from um, the point of view of the pulmonary hypertension, such as patients with severe left heart disease, for example, who have an elevated pulmonary arterial pressure due to the left heart disease, due to the elevated pulmonary venous pressure, or patients with a severe lung disease who may have an elevated pulmonary arterial pressure due to their lung disease, they did not undergo um, right heart catheterization. So this is uh, one important detail regarding uh, the indication uh, for right heart catheterization. And this is also a limitation of the study. We may uh, talk later about it because these patients were not included into our collective. Absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. And also, it looks, it appears that it's 72% of the patients enrolled were the ones studied retrospectively, and then the, the final 28% were, were studied prospectively. Um, and so, Dr. Kovac, I, I did want to also ask you about a detail that I think becomes important because I think this is a this is uh, obviously uh, an ambitious uh, paper to sort of tease out these different mean. PAP ranges in mortality. So you performed a classification and regression tree analysis. So I don't, I don't want some of our listeners may not want to get too deep in the weeds of the CARD analysis. But if you could sort of give a brief overview of of what that is and and how it helps inform your study results. Absolutely, and I'm very happy for this question because I I think it's it's one of the important parts. So we chose two methods, and I hope, because I know that Dr. Maron is extremely good in statistics, so I hope I will tell everything correctly, but he, he may add something if he doesn't agree. So um, first of all, uh, I mentioned uh, to you uh, this uh, normal level of pulmonary pressure in the, in the uh, large collective of healthy subjects. It's about 14 millimeters of mercury, and one standard deviation is around three, so that's how the upper limit of normal was decided as usually it is used in medicine, the mean value plus twice the standard deviation at 20. So that's why we first we did an approach. We had an approach where we said we would like to have lower normal values, that's 14 plus 3, so below 17 millimeters of mercury. Then we had a second group, an upper normal pulmonary pressure, that's 17 to 20 millimeters of mercury. Then we had the borderline, 20 to 25, and then the pulmonary hypertension group. So this is based on the historical groups and based on, on the normal values of the pulmonary pressure. However, as you mentioned, we also performed this CART analysis because we wanted to see also uh, how these thresholds are based on an unbiased approach. So this is not biased by previous cohorts, by previous world conferences, by expert opinion. This is only based on our group of patients. And of course, that may be different in other groups of patients, but we wanted to see which are the values, the threshold values, who divide in the best way our group of patients with different mortality. And this was this classification and regression tree analysis. 
And with its help, we found two thresholds. The one threshold was at 16.5 millimeters of mercury, and the other one was at 26.5 millimeters of mercury. And so we could define three groups based on these two thresholds below 16.5 millimeters of mercury, between 16.5 and 26, and above 26 millimeters of mercury. And all these uh, three groups had uh, different uh, survivals, as we uh, show it in the paper. And why we found it very, very interesting, because these unbiased thresholds were very similar to the thresholds that we chose um, in our historic approach. And by the way, they were also very similar to the thresholds that were published by Dr. Maron, for instance, in his analysis. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Maron, did you have anything to add regarding the, the card analysis before we ask Dr. Kovacs for some of the specifics? Uh, no, not, not in particular, although I'll, I'll say that um, I think it's a great strength to these type of academic works, um, which have important clinical implications and involve a continuous variable to use different approaches uh, at understanding where uh, the corresponding changes in outcome are are uh, identified. So I, I thought one great strength to the paper was that specific approach, was that um, they did not rely on a single uh, method for determining uh, correlative risk related to pressure level. And we're trying to find different ways to uh, determine the, the rigor by which each of the different measurements they had identified could be used for estimating outcome. And I think that those types of approaches are more and more welcomed uh, to avoid uh, sort of tunnel vision in the way that we conventionally analyze uh, clinical data. I think it can be very helpful. Okay. Well, let's uh, not leave the, our listeners in suspense any longer. So, uh, Dr. Kovacs, you mentioned the three groups, um, PAP, mean PAP less than 16.5, those between 16.5 and 26, and then greater than 26. So what were your findings uh, there? Yes. So if we looked at, at uh, this analysis, then we found that uh, all these uh, three groups had a different survival, and the higher the pulmonary pressure was, uh, the worse the survival of the patients was. And also in the other analysis where we chose um, the lower, the higher uh, normal group and the borderline uh, pulmonary pressure group, there we could show that um, even in the multivariate analysis, um, in the multivariate uh, Cox regression analysis, after the uh, excluding the effects of age and comorbidities, borderline elevation of pulmonary pressure still remained an independent factor of mortality. So we found that it is a very important finding because it highlights that an increased pulmonary pressure above the level of normal has a prognostic relevance. And um, and uh, that's why all these uh, patients uh, really have to be cared for. I think it's a very interesting finding, um, Dr. Marin. I, I do think, you know, I suspect it doesn't surprise you, given your prior work and our prior discussion on this podcast. So, I guess, what is your impression there of that finding that you know the the group that had a mean PA uh, twenty to twenty five had 
you know, a higher mortality than the ones who had lower mean PAs and declining exercise tolerance. Well, I think that um, the case was being built that uh, mean pulmonary artery pressure levels uh, above normal but below the current threshold may be clinically relevant. Uh, Up until this paper, however, uh, prospective data that were uh, powered sufficiently to draw conclusions on meaningful clinical endpoints for pulmonary hypertension were generally uh, lacking. And so uh, this in that way, provides a critical piece to the story uh, because uh, it is true that there were uh, larger data sets that had been published showing similar findings, but those were retrospective analyses. And uh, as we all know, those data can be limited by uh, access to granular information on the patients um, in a way that uh, the current study was not limited by. And so I think that it provides uh, really another uh, level of information that uh, rounds out what has emerged as a very powerful story that characterizes in greater detail the spectrum of risk uh, according to pulmonary artery pressure. Uh, and And in that way, it can serve as an example, not just for PA pressure, but other variables in our field, as well as perhaps other uh, forms of cardiopulmonary disease, which may be uh, based on historical definitions or data that are not linked to clinical outcome and studied as detailed uh, in a retrospective and prospective way as uh, the current uh, topic is. Yeah, and Dr. Kovac, I wanted to go back to you to ask about, you know, I think you mentioned some of the groups that were excluded or possibly the ones with severe lung disease or significant left heart disease clinically, um, and you mentioned that you see, you know, at-risk scleroderma patients. Um, so would you be able to categorize, you know, was it group one PAH patients who were the ones who um, were the ones who had that higher risk? Was there a specific phenotype of patients that you could identify that whose, you know, mean PA pressures that were less than 25, but as we call borderline, that, that group may in particular be at risk? Well, there is accumulating evidence that, for example, patients with scleroderma um, may uh, really be a very special uh, group. There is, a, there is a, a paper also published in the European Respiratory Journal uh, that came out uh, two years ago from, from a Swiss group who found uh, uh, that uh, elevated pulmonary pressure values at rest and also during exercise, but we know from other papers that the resting and exercise values may be uh, connected to each other, uh, that uh, they may have worse prognosis. And there are also other uh, papers coming out uh, who show that patients with scleroderma in this range are um, usually developing uh, pulmonary heart hypertension within a, sh- uh, a relatively short period of time. So I believe uh, scleroderma is definitely uh, one condition uh, where we have to be very careful and, and look at it if we find uh, patients um, uh, with a mean pulmonary pressure between 20 and uh, 25 millimeters of mercury for them an extra caution uh, has to be uh, done. On the other hand, and I think it's also important uh, to highlight this point, that uh, not all of the patients may develop pulmonary arterial hypertension or 
uh, or the reason for this elevation of the pulmonary pressure will not always be pulmonary vascular disease. A mild left heart dysfunction or COPD or lung fibrosis or other lung diseases or a sleep apnea, for example, can also lead to a mild elevation of pulmonary pressure, which is a very different pathophysiology as compared to pulmonary arterial hypertension patients. Uh, yes, and I think that's kind of where I was uh, uh thinking about this. So, um, and I'd ask actually both of you to uh, chime in. Um, you know, certainly the question is, is this just a marker uh, in a variety of different diseases uh, across the WHO, you know, uh, pulmonary hypertension group classifications? I guess first asking Dr. Kovacs, were you able to see any signal there? I know you cited that there's obviously existing literature about uh, scleroderma. Were you able to see any signal in, in your single center experience and um, I'd ask Dr. Co- uh, Dr. Marin to follow up after that to see what what his thoughts on, are regarding that. Is that, that just is that the working hypothesis that this is a a marker across the different WHO classifications of patients at risk? Well, thank you very much. I, I think this goes really to the heart of the matter. Uh, so I I really feel that that scleroderma is a very very important group of patients because we know that about 10% of scleroderma patients will develop during their life uh, pulmonary uh, hypertension. And um, patients with uh, scleroderma and pulmonary arterial hypertension have a worse uh, prognosis uh, than idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension uh, patients due to several uh, reasons, probably including myocardial um, uh, reasons as well um, and uh, right heart uh, function. However, that's why I think that it's especially important that these patients will be found already in this stage between 20 and 25 millimeters of mercury. And if they develop pulmonary arterial hypertension so that they can uh, start to be therapied very in, a, in a very early stage. On the other hand, I agree with you that uh, Increased pulmonary pressure, I think it is a marker which is not only valid for pulmonary arterial hypertension, revealing a pulmonary vascular disease, but also it's a marker for patients with lung diseases or patients with heart diseases. It's a prognostic marker there too. There are studies out there showing that even somewhat lower values um, may mean um, as compared to lower um, uh, pulmonary pressure. So if you distinguish patients at 17, 18, or 20 millimeters of mercury, those ones with the higher pressure values have a worse prognosis and increased risk for uh, mortality or morbidity as compared to those with the lower values. So the pulmonary pressure is an important marker in pulmonary diseases, also in heart diseases, it's prognostically relevant, but it does not necessarily mean that uh, it is a pulmonary vascular disease, a pulmonary arterial disease in these cases. It may increase due to increased intrathoracic pressure, for example, in COPD patients, or it may increase due to several other uh, reasons in lung diseases, 
or due to an elevated um, pulmonary venous pressure in left heart diseases. And yeah, so I thank you for that. And, and Dr. Marin, so I guess going back to you, so do you consider, do you agree with that uh, consideration? Maybe elevated mean PAP is a marker of people, is it uh, elevated mean PAP is a marker of people who may be at, at higher risk and they need to be followed more closely regardless of their group classification? Yes, I believe that uh, patients with a pulmonary artery pressure of 20 or greater um, are at increased risk from a prognosis standpoint. I would caution a little bit against the assumption that it is uh, merely a marker, uh, since we really don't know what the consequences on right heart pathophysiology are related to subtle elevations in pulmonary artery pressure. And I think that's really um, another uh, important target for the field, which is understanding whether there are mechanical complications on right ventricular function that may occur at subtly elevated pulmonary artery pressure levels, which are not detectable by echocardiography, for example, but could be uh, important. Um, the uh, co-author on our editorial for Dr. Kovach's uh, work, uh, Dr. Wertheim is a pulmonologist in uh, my group, and he is studying right now what the consequences of subtle elevations in pulmonary artery pressure are on uh, right ventricular pulmonary arterial coupling as one example of how uh, changes that may not be evident clinically or uh, by standard measurement tools may uh, be detectable using other strategies. And I think really that will help uh, to clarify the issue of whether or not these pulmonary pressure levels are merely sort of a marker and they keep bad company for patients, or whether they could be directly responsible for adverse changes in uh, right heart pathophysiology. Uh, so, you know, as, as uh, someone invested in the field, we welcome uh, any thoughts on that and contributions, because I think until we clarify that, there will always be questions re uh, regarding what the uh, pathophysiologic relevance and significance are for uh, these levels in this range. Yeah. Um, uh, if I, I may add just two yes. sentences to that. Uh, so thank you very much for these points, and I'm really very much looking forward to, to the results of this work. I, I think it's, it's an excellent point, and, and uh, really I, I, I think it's, it's great to, to be investigated. What I also want to highlight that um, at the moment we are talking about uh, the resting pulmonary pressure values. We shouldn't forget that um, in daily life we exercise all the time. We try to catch the bus and we run or we go up to stairs um, in the house or, or, or at work. And this is exercise for our uh, circulation. And it has been shown that slightly patients with slightly elevated pulmonary pressure values at rest may have much higher pulmonary pressure values during exercise. So that means that in those patients where we assess these slightly elevated values on the right heart catheter table in the supine position may have much higher values during exercise which may have an impact of the right ventricle and on, on the right ventricular function. And then I just, I think these are, this is a great conversation. It's going to sort of help us as, as our wrap-up. I just want to close the loop on, on Dr. Kovach, your study in, in terms of limitations. You did mention, obviously, 
it's a single center. Part of it was retrospective and part was prospective. Um, the card analysis was obviously based on that single center, as you already mentioned, and some of the patients with lung disease and left heart disease uh, would be excluded from the CATS. Were there any other particular limitations you thought were, were worth noting? Yes, thank you very much. I think you, you mentioned the most important ones. Uh, I may add one more important uh, limitation. Uh, it's uh, that the way we handle cardiopulmonary comorbidities in the, in the study, it is always very difficult to decide uh, how we categorize uh, the comorbidities uh, patients have in order to, to handle them from the statistical point of view. So the way we did what we chose that we counted, um, we grouped and counted uh, cardiopulmonary comorbidities, which is also provided, of course, in the manuscript. But for example, we could not um, include the severity of the comorbidity. So of course, if you you cannot compare uh, a patient with a severe COPD and a mild COPD, although we did not include patients with very severe COPD in, in this study, but uh, I, would, I would address this one as a limitation of our results. But I think you, you just have to make a decision and, uh, and uh, you will have um, any, some, some of these limitations anyhow with the comorbidities. Sure. And then as we, get, uh, as we are starting to close the podcast, I, I did want to ask, I mean, I think you, know, you, you both are giving, uh, uh, providing a, an abundance of evidence saying that maybe that, that mean PAP of 25 as a deficit for pulmonary hypertension uh, may be suboptimal. But obviously the challenge is that, you know, you can't perform right heart caths in normal asymptomatic people. We can't get data on normal and abnormal ranges for um, you know, uh, multiple patients from vital signs that we can easily do non-invasively. So first, I guess, Dr. Marin, I'd ask you, um, is there a, do we need to make an adjustment on that threshold for pulmonary hypertension? How do we go about confirming that? Or do we just acknowledge this group that we call borderline is also at risk and may need um, closer uh, attention? Well, thanks for the question. I, I think this is really the the key question uh, in the field right now. Um, my own personal view is that the uh, threshold that defines pulmonary hypertension uh, with respect to pulmonary artery pressure should be decreased from where it is currently to one which incorporates an outcomes-based uh, perspective and a database perspective. And that, of course, based on our conversation, would be uh, something that was, was around 20. Uh, I think that acknowledging patients who are at a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 20 as being abnormal and linked to adverse uh, prognosis has important implications for identifying these patients earlier. It has important uh, information for risk stratification at point of care. At this point, as, as Dr. Kovach had mentioned earlier, it does not have implications uh, for pharmacotherapy. But that does not mean that uh, encouraging risk factor modification in patients who may uh, be uh, who may have comorbidities for left heart or pulmonary lung disease uh, should be excluded. So I think there is great opportunity here by decreasing the threshold value, so long as the community uh, acknowledges the, that there uh, this is not a license to treat with vasodilator therapy, since there are no data for that right now. 
But on the other side of that coin uh, raises the question of whether clinical trials are needed to assess uh, whether there's missed opportunity for treating patients uh, at an earlier time point. Uh, and, and I agree that those trials are warranted at this point uh, to help clarify uh, how to manage uh, the sizable population of patients who fall into this category. Well, thank you for that. And I'd like to close the podcast for asking for Dr. Kovach's final thoughts regarding that. I guess two points that Dr. Marin uh, brought up there, the ability to decrease the, um, to, to encourage sort of outcome and data-centered um, threshold, uh, and which would suggest lowering that mean PAP threshold for pulmonary hypertension. And, and then two, I thought it was interesting mentioning, you know, do you study like the scleroderma patients, the group one patients, um, pulmonary vasodilators, and somebody who has who has is in that at-risk 20 to 25 millimeter mercury mean PA pressure group. Your thoughts, uh, Dr. Kovac, as we come to a close? Thank you very much for this question. And uh, I think Dr. Maron just uh, really very nicely summarized uh, the most important uh, thoughts on, on this field. It's really now a very active discussion. I think there are a few points which we can highlight. I think we can highlight to say that uh, uh, mean pulmonary pressure above 20 millimeters of mercury is not normal. I think everyone agrees on that. I think everyone agrees on that, that uh, we have the data from clinical trials in populations with a mean pulmonary pressure above 25 millimeters of mercury currently. And we need, third, we need really data uh, in patients between 20 and 25 millimeters of mercury. If I had the choice, I would probably choose at this moment maybe scleroderma patients within this range to see if they profit uh, from uh, PAH therapy in a clinical trial, of course. And this may be a good first uh, step uh, in this direction. Actually, I, I know that such ideas uh, are on the way and such uh, trials are on the way. And I'm sure that um, maybe within uh, one or two years, we may have the results and then we can build up on that and make uh, further ideas. Well, I, I want to thank Dr. Kovach and Dr. Marin for a great discussion about a fascinating paper and um, a, a very interesting topic going forward. To our listeners, I encourage you to always read the primary literature. You can find Dr. Kovach's paper and, and Dr. Marin's uh, uh, editorial at atsjournals.org or in the February 15, 2018 print version of the Blue Journal. Please subscribe to our Out of the Blue podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. 